Uh, one of the things I remember growing up was Saturday morning TV. There was a theme to my watching. It was the, uh, the age of the outlaw in the early 80s. I got myself thinking this week. We had the Dukes of Hazard. The, uh, the car was the star in the Dukes of Hazard. That orange, what was it called? General something. General Lee, there we go. The General Lee, was the, the, the car was the star. But these two brothers are always on the run, jumping over hay bales, uh, wearing checkered shirts, a bit more than this, and so on. But they were always on the run. They were on the edges of society, the, just always continually pushing the boundaries of the law, getting away with as much as they could. That was the Dukes of Hazard. If you switched over to Channel 4 from ITV, you would go into the realm of black and white. I'm not that old, but I remember black and white on Channel 4 because it was Zorro. Zorro, who was hid from absolutely everybody by a thin piece of leather covering his eyes, and nobody knew who he was. Even when he took it off, he looked just the same to me. But Zorro was there, fighting against the realms of black and white TV, and his horse always seemed to save the day. But with his swashbuckling nature, he always defeated the baddie and saved the goodie. That was two. I remember Robin of Sherwood, ITV. Not uh, Saturday morning now, it's now Saturday tea time, because I spent the whole day watching TV, as you can tell, from uh, kids' TV through to grandstand, proper <coughs> TV sport. And then come tea time, it was Robin of Sherwood, with that guy with the two swords that he kind of drew over his back. Who remembers him? Do you remember him? He was really crafty, and it was the Robin of Sherwood show where good old Robin, out in the woods, would take from the wealthy, he would give to the poor, and the horrible Duke of Nottingham, the Sheriff of Nottingham, rather, he would never catch him. It was the days of the outlaws from morning till dusk. Since last Christmas, we've been journeying through Luke. And uh, if you want to understand who Jesus is, one way to do it would be to see who he rubs shoulders with. Right the way back last Christmas, we looked at Jesus' arrival into the world, the, that long, lovely section, the Annunciation in Luke 1 and 2. We looked at Jesus' early life. We went through baptism and temptation. Then we got to the early part of his ministry and this really long section of teaching. But it wasn't just... Uh, hand-to-mouth teaching from Luke 5 through to about Luke 17, 18, something like that. Jesus met with people an awful lot. If you want to understand a person, if you want to rub shoulders with them, someone like Michael and Rob this week, just see who people rub shoulders with. I mean, think about who Jesus has rubbed shoulders with. He's rubbed shoulders with people who are on the outside and outlaws, socially, Pimps and prostitutes, ethnically, Jew and Gentile. Gender barriers have been smashed down. For every man Jesus meets with, he meets with a woman. I mean, all the rule book is in absolute tatters because Jesus came, we can read from our passage, verse 10. What a great bumper sticker definition of the gospel. Jesus came, the Son of Man came, to seek and to save the lost. And we've seen from last Christmas right up until the start of the summer that Jesus rips up the rule book and he's here to meet with outsiders. Outsiders are attracted to him and Jesus is really attracted to outsiders. The religious people are repelled by Jesus. They don't love the gospel. But outsiders, outcasts, outlaws, they love Jesus because they love the gospel. Because they see that they're not a somebody, they're a nobody. 
whether they're an ethnic, social nobody, when they're an outlaw or an outsider. We're all nobodies. And we all need the Son of Man, verse 10, who came to seek and to save the lost. And this morning, as we get to chapter 19, and as we get into the autumn, autumn's coming, you can see it in the leaves, conkers are about, so you can boil them up in vinegar, get them hard and play with each other, even on the 18th of September at the fun day. Did you remember that? As we get from the autumn through to Christmas, we're going to go a little bit slower than we have been going. Because Jesus meets someone else this morning. He meets a short man called Zacchaeus. And it's a short passage that's very, very deep. But from Jericho, Jesus will head to Jerusalem. And from the autumn, as we get to Christmas, probably the end of November, we'll finish up the book and we'll see about the Son of Man who truly came to seek and to save the lost. But let's look at this passage. Verse 2, this says a lot. Verse 2, the first thing I want us to think about is that anybody can come. Anybody can come. That's the first thing that this passage teaches us. Look at verse 2. We're in Jericho, verse 1, and now we meet Zacchaeus, who we're told, verse 2, is not only a chief tax collector, literally it says he's an ark. He's an ark tax collector. He's the tax collector in chief for a region. Not only is he the chief tax collector, he's also wealthy. Just this week, I uh, remembered a story when a friend of mine, who is a tax collector, they work for HMRC, don't boo. Um, they say, when I, someone says, what job do you do? I don't say that I'm a tax man anymore. I don't even say that I work for Her Majesty's Revenues and Customs. Now I say I work for the government. It's got that bad that I don't want to tell anybody that I'm a tax collector. Now, if it's that bad now, that's not half as bad as it was then. Not half as bad as it was then. These tax collectors, you may know some of this already, they were employed by the Imperial Guard of the Roman army. Rome has come in, it's dominated, it's subjugated the Jewish people. It imposes a heavy and an arduous tax on everybody that lives in Jericho and Jerusalem and the surrounding area. And who was it that would do their bidding as the imperial force? It was the tax collectors. The tax collectors would go around with a Roman henchman and say, pay up or else. And if you didn't listen to short Zacchaeus, you would listen to his right-hand man. Zacchaeus, though, has gone through the ranks. He's now not on ground level. He's now in charge of a number of tax collectors under him. And he would have reaped a little bit from their hard and dirty work as well. So not only is he the ark, the chief tax collector, he's also wealthy. Two things we learn just from verse 2. Historians also tell us that they would skim off not just what the Roman Empire said they should be getting so that they would have enough money to do their next military exercise. They would also add a little bit on for their own benefit as well. If they saw a BMW chariot that they liked, they could just add on a little bit more that week. If they thought their retirement fund was going down because of the FTSE had tanked, they would just add a little bit more. Brexit was not a problem for them. They were just taxed a little bit more heavily. They were a nasty piece of work. And socially, they were, they were dirt. People would have hated them. They would have crossed the, route, the, the street when they saw a tax collector because of all the hardship they would have caused their family by taking their well-earned catch. And if you're not sure, if you don't believe me, all historians, look at verse 7. This passage tells us how the social fabric thought of tax collectors. Verse 7, it says, All the people saw this when Jesus invited himself to Zacchaeus' home, and they began to mutter. They began to grumble. 
They know who Zacchaeus is. They know what he's done. They've seen his henchmen. They've felt his force and his influence. And so when Jesus went to his house, they began to to mutter. Why is Jesus going to him? And that's really the question that we should be asking. If, If we've read Luke's gospel as a whole, we might have a few clues. But the real question is, what in the world is Jesus doing with Zacchaeus? If we have a bit of a wider angled lens on, look down to verse 28. If you read the passage in its context, we will see that in just 10 days' time, Jesus will die for the sins of the world. Verse 28 tells us that Jesus is about to enter into Jerusalem. He's currently in Jericho. But he's about to enter into Jerusalem. He's going to die for the sins of the world. And yet Jesus, with with a crowd following him, making his way to Jerusalem, setting his face towards the cross, stops with his entourage and deliberately has a divine appointment and his graciousness picks on this troublemaker, this social outcast, this outlaw, Jesus picks on him and says, I want to meet with you. I know what you've done, but I want to meet with you. Verse five, I want to spend time with you. I want to come to your home. I want to have a meal with you. I know that all these people look down their noses at you. I know that you may have been spat at by these people. I know that you might have had dust thrown in your face by these people. But Jesus says to Zacchaeus, I want to meet with you. I know what you've done, I know who you are, but I want to meet with you. There is a pattern in Luke's Gospel when it comes to tax collectors. Permit me just a little excursion here. There are six references to tax collectors in the whole of Luke's Gospel. I want to just point your attention to three. Tax collectors, although that's a dirty word in the first century, although they would have been outsiders and outcasts and outlaws in society, when it comes to Luke's Gospel, what has interested me is that nobody, Luke namely, Luke never says a bad word against tax collectors. So in chapter 3, John the Baptist is on the scene. And a tax collector comes and says, I want to be baptised. And John's disciple says, what do we do? Or you go on to Luke 5. Now the Lord Jesus has arrived. He's been baptised. He started his public ministry. And he appoints Matthew to be an apostle, who, by the way, was a tax collector. Then we could go to Luke 18. Just before the summer started, we were in Luke 18. There's that famous story of two people went up to the temple to pray. Do you remember? One was a Pharisee, one was a tax collector. The Pharisee, surely they would know how to approach God, but he didn't, did he? He approached God and said, thank God that I'm not like other people like him. But who was it who stood at a distance and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner? It was a tax collector. There is a pattern that Luke is deliberately making When it comes to a tax collector, just like he's done with women, just like he's done with Jew and Gentile, just like he's done with pimps and prostitutes, outsiders, Luke is saying, these are the very people Jesus came for. These are the very people that Jesus came for, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. What's going on? You can be a social outcast, you can be an ethnic outcast, you can be a physical, a moral outcast. You can have leprosy. Jesus spent a whole ton of time with lepers. But Jesus, through Luke's gospel, is saying, the gospel is for everybody. It's not for the masses. It's for those who see their spiritual need. It's not for the proud. 
is for the humble. It's not for the highfalutin, it's for the lowly. Jesus is saying the gospel is for everybody. The religious people didn't like Jesus' message. They didn't like the good news. In religion, you always think that you can get to God on your own terms, with your own efforts, with your own force, with your own nature, by doing stuff. Look at the religions of the world. If you do enough, if you behave well enough, if you give enough, if you go to the right places, you can save yourself. God will be pleased with you. But outsiders like Zacchaeus, as we see now, they love Jesus. They're drawn to Jesus as Jesus is drawn to them because they love the gospel. Zacchaeus is about to see his unworthiness, his outsideness. But Jesus has come for people just as him, just like him. Zacchaeus is going to see like we all see and we all know. He's lost. He's a failure. He has a huge need that only Jesus can meet. And that's why Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to park my bus just outside your tree because I want to come home with you. I've come for you. I love you. I know you. I know you're on the outside socially, but I've come for people just like you. Friends, one of the signs that we are aligned with the priorities of King Jesus is that we will have the same heart. We all have the same heart for people who live in the highways and the hedges. We all have the same priorities in our diary for people who are socially awkward, people who have great need, people who look different, who smell different, who speak differently from us, people who are from different classes to us. We all have the same priorities of Jesus if we have the same passion as Jesus, which is to see the lost saved. And they won't save themselves. It's impossible. And that's why we need to seek them out as a little church. That's why we need to pray for opportunities, to intentionally look for opportunities, to set up a stall on Hook Arena and hope and pray that people will come and and get a temporary tattoo, not a permanent one. That, That they read literature, that we can have conversations with them. Why? Because one of the signs that we're Christians is that we have the same passion as King Jesus. And what's that? Verse 10, we want to seek and to save lost people. And we can't do it ourselves, but Jesus can. The first thing I want you to see from verse 2 alone, this passage teaches us, it reminds us of from what the whole of the Luke's gospel has taught us. The gospel is for everybody and anyone can come. Let's look at the passage more closely. Three things. Second point, it shows us how you can come. It shows you how you can come. Yesterday morning, I said this to somebody else, I had my alpha male few hours where I organized my log pile for the winter. It was great fun. I had a new rotivating saw. Didn't do any damage to my fingers this time. Just damage was done to the wood. But we have order where there was chaos, so I felt secure. Then in the afternoon, having stuffed my face full of calories because I was so hungry, we went to Nonsuch Park and we cycled and we climbed trees. There is something great about climbing trees, especially if you're a kid. Adults don't climb trees. Two adults climbed a tree in Nonsuch Park yesterday, just to kind of debunk this myth. But very rarely do you see adults climbing trees. It's a a social no-no. It's a bit of a disgrace, unless you're trying to see the queen or seeing somebody passing your way. Adults want to keep their dignity. Children don't give the monkeys, and they want to climb the tree like monkeys to see what they want to see. They want to have fun. They want to relax. Here, we see Zacchaeus. 
showing us three things about how you come to Jesus. Three things about how you come to Jesus. Number one, he would have been dressed with the trappings of wealth, but he wanted to see Jesus. He didn't shop at TK Maxx. There's nothing wrong with shopping there. Don't hear me wrong. He would have gone to Sloan Square. He would have had his designer labels on, but he wanted to see Jesus. And so he did something that children are experts at. He climbed up this sycamore tree so that he could see Jesus. He didn't care about his status at that point. He recognized his need. He didn't care if he got his designer trainers or sandals snagged. He wanted to get up that tree to have the correct vantage point. He didn't care that people would be tutting at him, that people might even spit at him. He didn't care that he might have left his Roman guard behind. He wanted to get up that tree to see Jesus. Look at verse 3. He wanted to see who Jesus was. He was going to be vulnerable. He was taking on risk. He was taking on damage to his clothing. More importantly, he was losing the standing that he had. But he wanted to see Jesus. If you meditate on that sentence carefully, I think you can see something that on the surface you may not have seen. You realize that what Lucas recorded for us is not the same thing as saying Zacchaeus just wanted to see what Jesus looked like. There's more than that. He wanted to see who Jesus was. He's not just looking, he wants to see and understand. You see this in the original language. There are two words primarily for seeing. There's blepo, meaning I want to look at a picture, I want to look at a sunset. But if the word harao is used, that means I want to see and understand. I want to see and understand something. And that's the word that's used here. Zacchaeus scoots up this tree, leaving all his dignity to one side, because he wants to see and understand who Jesus is. Another thing that's striking is how Luke has put together two stories of people in the same place in Jericho. The story preceding this one is blind Bartimaeus, another blind man longing to see Jesus, longing to have his sight restored. It's no incident it's in the same place. And he throws himself on God's mercy and God gives him his sight back. And here we have another man who can see physically but spiritually is blind. And he climbs up a tree because he wants to see and understand the person of Jesus. The person and work of Jesus. If you're here this morning and you don't know who Jesus is, you will need to do something like this. It was easy for Zacchaeus. He climbed up a tree to see who Jesus was. There's no trees to climb here, but there is a book to read. If you want to see who Jesus is, it will be costly. You'll have to put your dignity perhaps to one side. You'll have to ask questions perhaps you've never asked before. You have to speak to other Christians. You'll have to take risks. You might have to go to a different place than you've been to before. But you must see who Jesus is if you want to become a follower of Jesus. It's not passed on information. You need to see for yourself. That's why you need to investigate what the Bible says. It means you'll look vulnerable. It means that you'll look needy. But you need to look just like Zacchaeus did. It's the first thing. If you want to become a Christian, if you want to come to Jesus, you need to see who he is. Here's the second thing. Verse 5. Jesus says to Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house today. I must stay at your house today. The reason that the, uh, the crowd are so aghast at uh, what Jesus says and does is right here. 
Socially, it would have been a huge thing to have a meal with somebody, especially at that time. In our time, it's a significant thing because an Englishman's home is his castle. But 2,000 years ago, it was a huge thing. To be invited into someone's home for, for the meal in the evening, that's being invited right into their hearts, right into the fabric of their life. In the days before electricity, when you had an evening meal, it was the last thing you'd do in the day. The, uh, the lamps would be lit, the oil would be poured in, the lamps would be lit, and the table would be set, and you would recline at table, you would eat together. It was the major family meal of the day. And after the meal has been finished up and washing up's done in your first century dishwasher, you would blow out the lights and you go to bed. There's nothing else to be done. Nothing else to be enjoyed. You've had rich food, great fellowship, and there's nothing else to be done. It's a huge thing. And here is Zacchaeus accepting an invitation from Jesus to have a meal in his home, verse 5. I must stay at your house today. I must stay at your house today. It's not just food. It's intimacy, it's relationship, it's life-on-lifeness. It's not, do you want to come round for a curry? I want to invite you into my home. I want to know who you are. I want to be involved in the fabric of your life. Look at the progression from verses 5 to 7. Verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up at Zacchaeus and said, I want to stay in your house. Verse 6, Zacchaeus welcomed Jesus in. Verse 7, when all the people saw this, they began to complain. They began to mutter. He's gone in to be the guest of a sinner. And these three words, guest, welcome, stay, they all mean the, uh, the idea of bed and breakfast, the idea of boarding, of uh, living with someone, of staying somewhere. It's not just a meal. It's a coming together. It's an intimacy. It's a personal relationship. It, it means that Jesus didn't just have a meal with Zacchaeus. It means really that he lived with Zacchaeus for a while. It's a coming together. He stayed overnight, that kind of thing, and he ate with him. And did you notice the order of what happened in those verses? Jesus knows all things. He's the second person of the Trinity. He threw the stars into space. He is empowered and uh, controlled by the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. He knows all things. That means he knows Zacchaeus intimately already. But Jesus Christ did not say, I will come to you, as he stops his entourage outside the sycamore tree, I will come to you when you stop being a nasty piece of work, when you stop fiddling the books, when you pay back what you owe, when you clean yourself up, when you become respectable, then I'll come to have a meal with you. Jesus says, I want to come to you tonight. I know what you've done. I know your name. That's very significant. I know your name. I want to be with you. I know your record. I want to be with you. I know who you've cheated. I want to be with you and I want to be with you now. I want to commune with you. I know the mistakes you've made, but I want to be with you. I want to become intimate with you. I want a relationship with you. Don't hold me far off. I want to come and have a meal with you in your house today. Jesus is the best uh, interior decorator there's ever been. Lawrence Llewellyn, who? You should see Jesus. When he comes into your house, when he comes into your life, he brings his own furniture. He begins to redecorate. He cleans up. He changes. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus, 
I know what you've done, but I want to move in with you. I want to move in right into your heart, and that's symbolized by a meal. It's symboled by table fellowship. And I want to do that now. I want to do that tonight. Thirdly, notice what Jesus says in verse 9. You need to see who Jesus is. You need to come into a relationship with Jesus as well. You need to accept his invitation. But thirdly, look at verse 9. Why does Jesus say salvation has come? Jesus has the audacity to say not salvation will come, you will become a Christian, not to say uh, salvation is coming. Jesus says salvation has come. That's past tense. That's perfect tense. That means something has happened in the past and, and now it's beginning to work through and flow through. Why does Jesus say that? Because he's here. Jesus can say that because he says, I'm here. I'm here. I'm salvation. Salvation has come into your life today because I'm here. You haven't got to do anything. You have to accept my gracious invitation. I want to come into your life. I want to come into your house. Zacchaeus does not invite Jesus into his heart. Jesus says, I want to come into your house. I want to come into your life. I want to come into your house and life today. You have to know who Jesus is if you want to become a Christian. You have to see who he is. You have to accept his invitation. You have to rest in who he is and what he has done. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Anyone can come to Jesus. This is how you come to Jesus, by seeing and accepting an invitation and resting in who he is. But thirdly, notice verse 9 and following. Notice how Zacchaeus changed. Notice how Zacchaeus changed. Notice how Zacchaeus responds to God's grace. Verse 9, Jesus says, to paraphrase, I now know you're saved because salvation has come. Jesus says you're a son of Abraham today. Your enemies, your social adversaries, they're not going to get this. But you're a son of Abraham today. You're a true son of Abraham today if you rest in my work. You have all the benefits that are mine. They now become yours if you invite me and acknowledge my invitation to come into your house and to come into your life and to center all your affections on who I am, my person and my work. How do we know that? How could he know that Zacchaeus now has become a spiritual descendant of Abraham, the great patriarch? How does Jesus know that? Because how Zacchaeus responds to Jesus' grace? Look at what he does. Look at his attitude towards his money and how that has changed. And your attitude is always seen in the actions that you produce. It's interesting to me, as we read through Luke's gospel, just how much there is on money. I mean, you would think that Jesus would say more on sex than he does. But actually, Jesus says a lot more about money than sex. Why is that? I think it's because money is so dangerous. He does say enough about sex and sexuality. But he says a bucket load, or a bank account load, should I say, about money. Why is that? Why is there this repeated theme throughout Luke and throughout all the Gospels about money? I think because it's so dangerous. Money is so dangerous. It just sneaks up upon you and it can control you. It can be like a taproot of a weed in your own spirit. It can be like a, an umbilical cord that promises you life but actually kills you. 
That's why Jesus says so much about money. He's always talking about money because of its danger. Money can uh, promise you security. If you just have enough, then all will be well. It can uh, give you a false sense of identity. You are your gym membership. You are your new car. You are your clothes label. You are your pension pot. You can be safe and secure depending on how much money you have. But your bank account is not just in a cyberspace somewhere. Money can get right into your spirit and right into your heart. It can control you. It has an exponential effect upon your spirit. It can be this spiritual umbilical cord. But in Zacchaeus' life, that's just about to be cut. He can just about see money for what it is. One of the signs that you've become a Christian. Money stops being your identity. It stops being your security. And it becomes just money. It becomes a tool to be used for God's glory. It becomes something you can give away by the bucket load. One of the signs that your action and attitude towards money changes is that you start to give it away more than you ever have done before. You cannot say, I've become a Christian and your attitude to money has not changed from the time when you were before a Christian. That is one of the signs that you have not become a Christian or that you need to grow drastically in this area of discipleship in your life. Your bank account will always be affected. Look at Zacchaeus' bank account. Verse 8, what does Zacchaeus say? He wants to respond to God's grace. Verse 8, he says, I'm going to give away half of everything to the poor. He's been an absolute crook. He's been a Dell boy to the max. I won't give any modern examples, but you can work it out. He's been an absolute toe rag to people. And he says, I've been so wrong in this area, I'm going to give away half of my money away. I'm going to give half away and give money to the poor. I'm going to pay back with a, a check everybody I have cheated. Remember checks? Those uh, older people amongst us? Middle age, should I say? <laughs> he can say salvation has come into your house. Why can Jesus say salvation has come into this man's life? Because his actions are backing up what's happened in his heart. Salvation first, then change. You're confronted with who Jesus Christ is and then there's a behavioural change. It doesn't happen before. Jesus does not say, clean yourself up, then you'll become a Christian. You're confronted with who Jesus Christ is and then the Spirit goes to work in your heart and then there's the fruit in keeping with repentance. Then there's change in a whole host of areas, relationships, finances, behaviour. Zacchaeus is not just doing what he is required. He's responding to God's grace. If he was just doing what he was required to do, he would just be giving 10% of his money away. That's a biblical principle when it comes to money. Give at least 10% of your money away. What does Zacchaeus say? No way. God has given me so much, I'm going to give away 50%. And then he says, if I've cheated anybody, I'm going to give money away four times the amount. I'm going to give away 400%. In Numbers chapter 5, it says, under the Old Testament system of law, if you cheated anybody, you should give them the money back plus 20%. Zacchaeus says, that's not enough. I'm going to give away 400%. I'm that sorry. I've been that blown away by God's grace. I'm, going to, I'm just going to respond in kind. I want to give it all away. It used to be what I lived for and now it's not. I found a new love and I know a new Lord. Look at verse 8. It's a lovely little note in the middle of the passage. 
Zacchaeus' attitude towards his money and towards people has been so utterly wrong and it's so utterly changed. Why? Verse 8, he calls Jesus his Lord. You're in charge of my life. You've moved in. We're about to have a meal together to celebrate this. And I'm going to respond in my actions because I've had a change of heart. I want to respond to your grace. And that's going to be seen in my life and seen in my wallet. Back when I was young, watching TV on Saturdays, the outlaw always got away. The General Lee always was, had too much juice in it to run away from those poorly supported police cars. Policemen are always poorly supported. Just say that to support Dave. Zorro always got away. His whore had more horsepower than anybody else. But the outlaw always got away and the lawman always struggled. How has Jesus got the audacity and the power and the authority to come along to Zacchaeus to stop his entourage ten days before he would die for the sins of the world on the cross and say, I'm looking for people just like you? How has Jesus got the power to say that? Think of it this way. Jesus was the ultimate insider, period, as Americans say. He was the insider in the Trinity. You don't get more insider than that. He was an insider. He was on the in crowd of the Trinity. He was the insider in heaven. He knew everything that would happen in the scheme of redemption. He's at the bosom of his father. It's the closest relationship that there will ever be. But this insider was willing to become an outsider. Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth, was constricted to the tininess of a virgin's womb. He grew up under the weight of the law, fulfilling every jot and tittle, crossing every T and dotting every I. He lived a holy and a perfect life. The ultimate insider on the cross was willing to become an outsider for you and me. Because this close relationship with his father was ripped apart on the cross. Because heaven was a distant memory, you could say, as he journeyed from heaven to earth. The insider of the Trinity, the insider of heaven, willingly became an outsider and an outcast. His nail-pierced hands on the cross for you and for me. Why did he do that? Because that's what his mission was all about. Verse 10. Why did Jesus Christ come? If ever you want to share the gospel in one sentence, here's how you could do it this week to a friend. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came because he wants to invite us home. He wants us to be rescued. And if you accept his invitation, you don't have to climb a tree, but it will change your life. Let's pray. Father, help us please never to be slow to recognize the amazingness of grace that saved a wretch like me. Father, we thank you for your heart that's seen in the ministry of your dear son who came to seek and to save what was lost. We would never look for you but you came to rescue us. We are determined to live in the squalor of our own sin and to enjoy it. We are happy to live in darkness, but you came to rescue us, to lift us up, and to put us on a new path. 
Thank you so much for King Jesus. Thank you for his obedience. Thank you for the perfectness of his life. And thank you for the obedience of his death. Thank you for his passion, for your glory and for our good. Amen.